The topic tonight is accusations, forgiveness, and advocacy, easing the demands of justice on others. We're going to talk first about accusations. John 8, 3 through 11 in the King James Version of the Bible says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. What was the intention of these Pharisees that came to him? Did they want to know the law? Did they want to know, you know, what was going on with, with this particular situation? No. They had the, the strategy to accuse him. The rest of the story goes like this. John 8, 3-11 continued. Verse 8. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Then neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In this particular story, Jesus, or whoever's writing this gospel, John, he makes the link between accusers and those that would condemn the woman. Accusing is a strategy to condemn. And so keep that in mind as we explore the next couple of um, scriptures tonight. Okay, Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The old serpent, the devil, is called the accuser. And John is saying that he accused them, the brethren, our brethren, accused them before our God day and night. Satan is the accuser, as we'll see. In verse 11, Revelation 12, continuing in verse 11, and they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And this verse is pretty clear that the work of the devil in part or in whole is to be an accuser 
of the brethren and to accuse them using the law of justice before our God. Hey, so-and-so did this, 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 this on the earth. They are mine. By law, they belong to me. This law of justice demands that these be sealed unto me for eternity, that they can't see God again. This is the strategy of Satan. He's seeking to seal people his. The law of justice is a horrific law. None of us want to be judged according to justice. I assure you that. Satan does, though. Let's continue. Christ is not the accuser. And here's my case for that. John 3, 16 and 17. Or just 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Remember, accusing and condemning were the same thing in prior verses. Colossians chapter 2. A couple different versions just to get the, uh, uh, the variety of, of wording here in this verse. Colossians 2.14, the King James Version of the Bible says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. New International Version of the Bible says for that same verse, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. New Living Translation, NLT. He canceled the record of the charges against us. Charges, accusations. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Christ is not an accuser. He seeks to take away those accusations and those condemnations and those charges against us according to the law of justice. In John chapter 5, verse 44 through 46, and this particular version is taken from the inspired version or the Joseph Smith translation, starting in verse 44. How can you believe who seek honor one of another and seek not the honor which cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is Moses who accuses you, in whom you trust. But you, for you had, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Jesus, again, on record of saying, I will not accuse you to the Father. I am not here to condemn you or to accuse you of doing wrong. That is what the Lucifer does. That's what Satan does. That is his work. And it is the work of wicked people, as we'll see by the end of this presentation. Christ is not the accuser. The devil is. How about the servants of God? You know, that last verse, it mentioned Moses. You know, he's saying, there is Moses who accuseth you, in whom you trust, right? Are the servants of God accusers? Should they be? Mosiah 2.15, King Benjamin Yet, my brethren, I have not done these things that I might boast, neither do I tell these things that thereby I might accuse you. It doesn't sound like he's trying to accuse anybody either. This King Benjamin fella. Continuing the verse. 
But I tell you these things that you may know that I can answer a clear conscience before God this day. Do you remember the verse we read in Revelation in 11? And they overcame him by the blood of the land and by the word of their testimony. King Benjamin is shaking off the responsibility and the blood and sins of this generation by testifying to these people of their wicked deeds and their sins. However, he is not there to accuse them. He is there to assist them in coming unto Christ and having a remission of their sins which is the way whereby mercy can have place in the, in the hearts of these people if they repent. So are the servants of God accusers? King Benjamin wasn't. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuseth them before our God day and night, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. How about this? Are the servants of the devil accusers? In Mark 3, verse 2, King James Version. I think he's talking about the Pharisees or some sort of Sadducee, one of those. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Goes back to that story we started out with, with the woman taken in adultery. They're asking him all these questions to try to get a trap for him. They're trying to lay a snare for him so they can have a reason to blame him and to say he did something wrong according to the law. And you better believe Satan was inspiring these people to try to get any little jot and tittle they could from Jesus Christ, this perfect being who's without sin. Satan was very interested in getting any dirt on him, right? That's the strategy of wicked people, and they carry it out from their master, the devil. Luke 11, 52 and 54, King James Version, starting at verse 52. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You have entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in you hindered. Verse 53. And he said, and, and he, as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. Verse 54, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Same old strategy, these guys, right? And you will find that there are Pharisees and Sadducees today walking the earth, lots of them. And they seek to do the same thing. They seek to lay traps with you and me in what we say that they can accuse us before the council of their brethren and before their God, which is Lucifer. And that is not a strategy of Christ or any of his followers. And this presentation tonight is to open our minds to the idea that Jesus Christ has a different game plan than walking around casting blame on every single person out there. That's not his interest one bit. Definitely a Satan's though. Are the servants of the devil, the accusers? Let's continue this question and you answer it yourself. Mosiah 17, 11 through 12 in the Book of Mormon. And now King Noah was about to release him, meaning Abinadi. King Noah was about to release Abinadi, for he feared his word, for he feared that the judgments of God would come upon him. But the priests lifted up their voices against him, Abinadi, and began to accuse him, saying, he has reviled our king. Therefore, the king was stirred up in anger against him, and he delivered him that he might be slain. The Pharisees and the Sadducees we just talked about, 
they were trying to get Jesus killed as well. The book, uh, the New Testament talks about the secret councils that were being had behind closed doors late at night, strategizing on how do we get this Jesus fellow. I would imagine there's quite a few prophets, quite a few righteous saints, quite a few normal Joes, average Joes and Janes that have the same problem, false accusations that lead to their condemnation or even worse, violence against them or death. Okay, so we talked about accusations, where those come from and where they don't come from. So let's use that as a groundwork and a foundation for the rest of the presentation. We're going to talk about judgment for a little bit. Is judging somebody the same thing as accusing them? Well, let's go to the famous Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. This Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that ye be not judged. Remember this? Don't judge anybody. We don't judge people. That's evil. So the second verse there, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you. Then, you know, law of Moses, tit for tat kind of stuff, right? Well, that was scratched out. Joseph Smith got rid of that in the Joseph Smith translation. And we will see about the beam and the moat in your eye. This version where you see all the green text, this is what Joseph Smith added as a correction to the story. Now let's read it again the real way. Now these are the words which Jesus taught his disciples. This is Matthew 7, 1 through 8 in the Joseph Smith translation or the inspired version of the Bible. Now these are the words which Jesus taught his disciples that they should say unto the people. Okay. He's telling his disciples that this is what you're supposed to be teaching to everybody. It's not just for the apostles. Verse 2. Judge not unrighteously that you be not judged but judge righteous judgment. And why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that's in your own eye? And again, you shall say to them, why is it that thou beholdest the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in your own eye? Or how wilt thou say to your brother, let me pull out the mote of your eye, your own eye, and canst not behold the beam in your own eye? And Jesus said unto his disciples, this is an all new verse. These next two verses are added. They're, they're new. And Jesus said unto his disciples, beholdest thou the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites? See those guys? Check them out. They teach in their synagogue, but, they, but do not observe the law nor the commandments. And all have gone out of the way and are under sin. Go thou unto them. Cool, right? He's sending these apostles to the scribes and Pharisees and the priests and the Levites who are hypocrites. Go thou to them and say unto them, why teach you men the law and the commandments when you yourselves are the children of corruption? Say unto them, you hypocrites, first cast out the beam of your own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Jesus was not a fan of hypocrisy, right? But I just said, you know, don't accuse people. That's not what Jesus does. He sounds like he's accusing people right here, right? Well, Jesus, Jesus is the judge. As we'll explain in just a minute, judgment is up to him. What is righteous judgment? What does it look like? Titus chapter two, verse three, King James. The aged woman likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, 
not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So don't be an accuser of something that's false. Righteous judgment is correct judgment. It's God's judgment. It's accurate to what God was saying, right? And so Jesus was teaching his disciples on the last slide how to go out and use righteous judgment. Are they condemning them, these Pharisees? No, Jesus is telling them to go and say unto them in verse 7. He's asking these disciples to go and ask the Pharisees. That's not an accusation. Why do you guys teach the law and the commandments when you yourselves are, are children of corruption? You know? All right. So next verse, Luke 3, verse 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, Jesus, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are you, ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So if this happens to you, um, could be a blessing. If you don't turn and revile them, you know, or do something to harm them, if you bear it patiently. That's verse 11, Matthew 5. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Okay. Righteous judgment. Who is the rightful judge? James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Don't accuse each other. So that you say yourselves, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. John 5, 22 and 27 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And he, God, gave him authority, the Son, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is our judge. John 8, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, Jesus, he lifted himself up and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a first stone at her. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees that caught the woman in adultery, right? What he's saying is, look, I'm the only one who's perfect here. None of you guys are. You don't have the right to judge anybody based on their iniquity because with whatever judgment you judge to others, that's what judgment you will have done to you. And you don't want the law of justice to be judged against you. So don't use the law of justice to try to provoke other people to getting into trouble and don't accuse them based on it, right? He's saying whoever among you doesn't have any sins, and he knows only he is the one without sin. That person has the right to judge. That person has the right to cast a stone. Of course, Jesus didn't, right? because he was merciful, but he was teaching these people that he was the rightful judge and that everybody else is required to judge righteously and not make any errors, no false accusations, not bearing false witness. That's what that commandment means. A witness against somebody that's false, that is against the 10 commandments, right? So let's talk about forgiveness and its role in all of this. Let's talk about why we forgive. Big block of scripture, 12 verses. This is DNC 
Section 64, which came in September of 1831. So about a year and a half after the church was, was started. DNC 64, 2 through 14. It's a longer one, but bear with me. For verily I say unto you, starting in verse 2, For verily I say unto you, I will that you should overcome the world. Wherefore, I will have compassion upon you. There are those among you who have sinned. But verily I say, for this once, for mine own glory and for the salvation of souls, I have forgiven you your sins. I will be merciful unto you, for I have given unto you the kingdom. And the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant Joseph Smith Jr. Through the means I have appointed while he liveth, inasmuch as he obeyeth mine ordinances. Verse 6. There are those who have sought occasion against him without cause. Is that righteous judgment? Or is that a false accusation? Right? Judge righteous judgment. There are people in this group who have broken that commandment. There are those who have sought occasion against him, Joseph, without cause. Nevertheless, he has sinned. But verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me and ask forgiveness, who have not sinned unto death. Did Joseph Smith make mistakes? Absolutely. I can point to 10 or 15 of them in the DNC where he's being reprimanded by the Lord. The Lord's not saying Joseph's perfect here. He's saying, I forgive him because he comes to me and he confesses his sins before me and he asks for forgiveness. So get off his case. Um, so continuing on, DNC section 64. He goes back in time to New Testament. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another. What do we call seeking occasion against one another? That's accusing, right? My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. That's interesting. So maybe there was a formal apology. Maybe they knuckled up and bro hugged. I don't know. But apparently in their hearts, they didn't go all the way with the forgiveness. They held grudges, perhaps. I wish we had more about the story. But they forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. God calls it evil to do that. Verse 9 in, in DNC 64, verse 9. Wherefore, I say unto you that you ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. Almost seems worse, doesn't it, to, to not be forgiving of people. So anyway, um, there's a little bit of gravity I'm trying to add to this topic of forgiveness on, on purpose. We're still in DNC 64. This is verses 10 and 11, continuing on. Trying to figure out the reason why we forgive. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you, it is required to forgive all men. And you ought to say in your hearts, this is what, this is what Jesus wants us to have in our hearts when somebody wrongs us, right? You ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me and thee. We just thought God was the only person worthy of being a judge. You ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. Now, this is an interesting scripture because we have in our minds the idea that we should always follow Jesus Christ. Always do what he does. 
But there are a couple of things that Jesus does that he reserves the right to do that we don't have the right to do. And one of those is to withhold forgiveness from anybody. I'll forgive whoever I want, Jesus says, but you guys have to rip. Um, you guys have to forgive everybody. It's required of you. Is he a hypocrite? I don't think so. He's the only judge, remember? So he can do that. We can't. Now let's take a look at a few more things where Jesus might have a different set of rules than the rest of us. Do we have the right to go and avenge our enemies? Right? Dearly beloved, this is Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That is not your job to get vengeance on somebody else because they did something wrong to you. That's my job, right? And in the Book of Mormon, we have another witness of this. And when they had sworn by all, this is Mormon 3, 14 through 15. And when they had sworn by all that they had been forbidden, that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle. That was forbidden. God said, don't do it. They did it anyway out of wrath. And they tried to get vengeance on their own. Continue on in the scripture, Mormon 3. And avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren. They were getting revenge because their buddies got killed on the battlefield. Behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, Mormon, saying, vengeance is mine and I will repay. That's just one example, two examples here on this page where Jesus has the right to forgive whoever he will forgive. But for us, we don't have that right. Um, we have to do it to everybody. Does that make sense? <clears throat> okay, back to DNC 64. We're almost done here. The last couple of verses, continuing on, verse 12. DNC 64, 12. And him that repenteth not of his sins and confesseth them not, ye shall bring before the church and do with him as the scripture saith unto you, either by commandment or by revelation. Verse 13. And this ye shall do that God may be glorified. Remember, we we're asking the question, why do we have to forgive? What is this all about? And this ye shall do, forgive one another, trespasses, this you shall do that God may be glorified, not because you forgive not, having no compassion, but that you may be justified in the eyes of the law, that you may not offend him who is our lawgiver. Another little tidbit. This scripture suggests that it's offensive to God when we don't forgive each other and we don't follow this law. Verse 14 Verily I say unto you, for this cause you shall do these things. So we are glorifying God, and we are not offending our lawgiver. He's the only judge that can give the law and judge based on it. We do not get to step up and pretend like we are God and withhold, withhold forgiveness and pass out judgment and accuse people and condemn people. That's his job, right? That's what he's trying to teach us. Okay, so talking about that one verse, and him that repenteth not of his sins and confesseth them not, ye shall bring them before the church and do with him as the scripture saith unto you, right? <laughs> so what do we do about the people that aren't repentant as far as church stuff goes, right? Um, let's explore this. This is interesting. So DNC 102, 18. 
February 1834, DNC 102.18. In all cases, the accuser and the accused shall have a privilege of speaking for themselves before the council. After the evidences are heard and the counselors who are appointed to speak on the case have finished their remarks. After the evidences are heard, the counselors, the accuser and the accused have spoken. The president shall give a decision according to the understanding which he shall give of the case, shall have the case and call upon the 12 counselors to sanction the same by their vote. Okay, so even dealing with stuff in the church, you got to give people a fair trial. You got to let the accuser talk. You've got to let the accused speak. And after they've gone over all of their things, um, then, then you can make a judgment based on the, the evidences, the facts, right? And, uh, you know, what's interesting is I recently was, was able to be called in um, to my ward, my bishopric, and I was questioned about a bunch of things being involved in the Doctrine of Christ website. Um, and they wouldn't tell me who my accuser was. It was a mystery. I didn't know who was saying these things about me. I don't know who was ratting me out or, you know, who placed the call. And I asked him that, where's my accuser in all of this? We're not supposed to tell you, Brother Curtis. This is breaking the scripture. The scripture suggests that if I have an accuser, let me and the accuser stand together and let's reason together and figure out what happened. Right. And so if you are going to deal with unrepentant church members or some someone that did any sin within the church, you got to make sure you're following the right protocols that God gave us through Revelation, through Joseph Smith. Right. You don't just call people in on heresy and deal with them and excommunicate. Give me a break. That's stupid. Don't ever do it. And if someone tries to do that to you, remind them that the law says in the scriptures, DNC 102, that the accuser and the accused must stand together and both give testimony for this to work. All right. Beliefs are not sins, believe it or not. Let's talk about that. Can you get mad at somebody? Should you hold a grudge on somebody because they don't believe what you believe? Is that a sin? What if someone doesn't believe that, you know, they should pay tithing or someone doesn't believe that angel Moroni should be on top of the temples, you know, or whatever it is, whatever the issue is, is that a sin? Let's ask Joseph. Joseph Smith said in March 1839, he wrote a letter to a guy named Isaac Galland and said, the first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is that we have the right to embrace all and every item of the truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the creeds and superstitious notions of men. That's what Joseph said your rights are, to believe whatever you want without being subscribed to creeds and superstitions and commandments of men. Joseph Smith also said this, the founder of the, uh, the Latter-day Saint movement. I never thought it was right to call up a man and try him because he erred in doctrine. It looks too much like Methodism and not like Latter-day Saintism. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be kicked out of their church. I want the liberty of believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled. It doesn't prove that a man is not good, not a good man because he errs in doctrine. That's what Joseph thinks about erring in doctrine. One more. 
out of three witnesses. If I esteem, this quote from Joseph Smith, March 1839. If I esteem mankind to be in error, shall I bear them down? No, I will lift them up and in their own way too. If I cannot persuade them, my way is better and I will, and I will not seek to compel any man to believe as I do, only by the force of reasoning for truth will cut its own way. He wrote that to Elder uh, Edward Partridge and to the church membership. Okay, so if we're going to hold grudges against people, and if we are going to uh, have accusations against people, hey, so-and-so doesn't believe in this. Who cares? They have the right to believe whatever they want. This is doctrine. Our founding father said it doesn't matter, you know, for this religion, the founding father of of the Latter-day Saint movement, Joseph Smith. None of this stuff matters. He never did this stuff. He never kicked people out of the church for having a different belief or difference of opinion. That's a Pharisee move. That's what Sadducees do, right? New Testament's full of that trap, those traps that they were trying to lay for Jesus, that they might accuse him. Ah, what does the law say about this, brother? Well, that differs from our, uh, our whatever, our handbook. And so, you know, we need to be careful with this, some of this stuff. And this does play into accusations and forgiveness. We need to forgive people for being wrong in doctrine. Try to teach them the truth by reason, sure. But let's not accuse each other for that. It's not a thing. Okay, so let's talk about what if there's multiple offenses? Or what if people aren't sorry about what they did and they keep doing it over and over, right? What do we do about those people? Do we enable them by just saying it's Okay. Well, let's take a look at the law that the Lord gave in DNC section 98 in August of 1833. This is DNC 98, 38 through 45. Behold, this is an ensample unto all people. Who? <laughs> Everybody. Ready? Listen up. Saith the Lord your God for justification before me. And again, verily I say unto you, if, thy, if after thine enemy has come upon thee the first time, and he repent and come unto thee, Praying thy forgiveness, thou shalt forgive him, and shalt hold it no more as a testimony against thine enemy, and so on until the second and third time. And as oft as thine enemy repenteth of the trespasses wherewith he has trespassed against thee, thou shalt forgive him until seventy times seven. Okay, so that's for people that repent. It's easy. Just always forgive them. Whoever repents, repents. Forgive him forever. In verse 41 of 98. And if he trespass against thee and repent not the first time, nevertheless, thou shalt forgive him. So you still got to forgive him, even if he doesn't repent or doesn't say he's sorry. And if he trespass again against thee the second time and repent not, nevertheless, thou shalt forgive him. And if he trespass against thee the third time and repent not, thou shalt also forgive him. But if he trespasses against thee the fourth time, thou shalt not forgive him. But bring these testimonies, these three testimonies, before the Lord, and they shall be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. And if he do this, makes restitution, if he do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thine heart. And if he doesn't do this, I, the Lord, will avenge thee thine enemy hundredfold right that's that's the law that's given in, in dnc 98 
let's talk about forgiveness in regards to reviling against people who are reviling us. Those of you who know me well, this is one I struggle with, right? <laughs> Very argumentative on Facebook. <laughs> so uh, working on it. Like I said, this was a topic I've been studying lately because it's cut into the center for me and it's, uh, it's something I'm trying to figure out. DNC section 19, verses 29 and 30. Thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains and upon every high place and among every people that thou shalt be permitted to see. And thou shalt do it with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers. First Peter chapter two, verse 23, King James, who, when he Christ was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, which is God. You see Jesus laying the, the model for us to follow in regards to reviling against people. He was kicked around, spat upon, called names, um, you know, slapped across the face. And, uh, you know, the story goes that he, he didn't do anything. He just bore with it patiently. Easier said than done, sure. But that's what is said we should do. Mark 15, 28 through 32. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's Christ. Christ was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, that thou destroyest the temple and buildest it up in three days. Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking said unto themselves with the scribes, he saved others himself. He cannot save. So they're poking fun at him. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that he that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Even the other two guys on the cross, according to the story, were, you know, were saying some things to him, reviling. Blessed are the merciful. Let's talk about mercy for a minute. Um this is one of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a stepladder to perfection. They are progressive. And right there in the middle of one, right before the one that says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. If your goal is to see God, listen up. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Here's a quote from Joseph Smith. In May 1843, this is like a year before he died. Righteousness is not that which men esteem as holiness. That which the world calls righteousness, I have not any regard for. To be righteous is to be just and merciful. If a man fails in kindness, justice, and mercy, he will be damned. Joseph Smith, again, July 2nd, 1839, says, Ever keep in exercise the principle of mercy and be ready to forgive our brother on the first intimations of repentance and asking forgiveness. And should we even forgive our brother or even our enemy before they repent and ask for forgiveness, our Heavenly Father would be equally as merciful unto us. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. 
Let's talk about a story here. In Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, there's a parable that's very important for this lesson tonight. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 18, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I said not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. A lot of money. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and a payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will repay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved upon with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Continued Matthew 18. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, which is nothing compared to 10,000 talents. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will repay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Verse 32 of Matthew 18. Then his Lord, after that, had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou have also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you. If ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother, their trespasses. Kind of a harsh story. But if we're nickel and diming about something someone said to us in passing, some rude comment, what is that compared to all of the sins of our lifetime that Christ is willing to forgive and absorb and dish out mercy for, to atone for? It's nothing. So don't treat each other with such contempt for all the little dumb things we do when we bicker, when we accidentally steal something, or when we you know, roll our eyes at someone's comment. You know, Life's too short for this stuff. And Jesus is trying to tell us that we are the people who have 10,000 talents worth of debt. You know, and uh, we need to consider this, that if we want the mercy of Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to be like him and extend mercy for those. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy, right? Okay, so let's move on to one of the last segments, which is advocacy. And this is a principle that's kind of um, somewhat new to me. I don't, I don't claim to be an expert on it, but I found some really good stuff that ties into the lesson. So Jesus Christ is the advocate for us. He pleads to the Father on our behalf. Listen to this in DNC 45. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings of death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. 
Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. That's what an advocate does. In a court of law, you've got a judge, you have a plaintiff and a defendant. And sometimes there's a prosecuting attorney and a defending attorney, right? So Jesus Christ, as our advocate, he's our judge and our defense attorney. Tell me that's not pretty good odds in your favor of winning that trial if you repent and come unto him, right? And do what he asks you to do. If you listen to his counsel in those meetings and follow his instructions, he can defend us against the great accuser. Satan, the great dragon, who's walking around in the earth because he's running out of time, pointing the finger and making lists of every little thing we do wrong. And every time we break the law and every time we disobey the Lord, he's got that because he knows that if we do not repent and return to God, we belong to him and we will be cut off and cast out forever. So naturally, repent come unto Christ, call upon him, follow him and forget, get the forgiveness of sins, beg him for his mercy and his atoning blood to be poured out upon you so that your sins like a cloak can be covered through him. He's got your back. He's your advocate. He's pleading your cause to the father. He's rooting for you. He wants you to get to heaven. He wants you to become righteous. He wants you to become perfect. In fact, he's commanded, be ye therefore perfect, even as I and your father in heaven is perfect. And one of the last things he said on that ladder to perfection, you know, blessed are the merciful, for they shall find mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's a peacemaker? Someone that walks around like uh, afraid of conflict and pleasing everybody? No, heck no. They could create more damage than they're worth. But anyway, the peacemaker, like we'll talk about, is one who is willing to endure suffering on behalf of wrongs done to them and not revile and not turn out sin and not get justice. They absorb it and they turn it over to the Lord. That's a peacemaker. They end all violence. They end all conflict by just patiently enduring it. And so let's also look at DNC 62, August 1831, the idea that Christ is our advocate. DNC 62, verse 1, Behold, and hearken, O ye elders of my church, saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, your advocate, who knoweth the weakness of man and how to succor them that are tempted. John 5, 44 and 46 in the JST. This is actually just 45. John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. We started out with this. He's our advocate. He's not going to accuse us to the Father. He's not our prosecuting attorney. He's our defense attorney. He's also our judge. That's the good news. But the laws of justice have to be met. And he can't allow you to have the full benefits of what he can offer unless you come unto him and repent. There are conditions upon which he can be your advocate with the Father. And so, Christ's law for us. Let's talk about that. In 1 Nephi 19, verse 9, 
in the Book of Mormon, it says, this is a prophecy about Christ coming. In verse 9, and the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore, they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, he, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness and his long suffering toward the children of men. And if we think that we're supposed to be full of charity one day and long suffering and love and kindness, if you think those are fruits of the spirit that should be in every saint, then this suggests that we too are probably going to have to at some point suffer some stuff without turning around and punching the guy in the face to get revenge. We may have to just quietly bear it. We may have to not say anything, even though on the tip of our tongue, we've got the worst burn in history, you know, ready to put this person down. We have to suffer sometimes if we're going to be peacemakers. Third Nephi 12, be ye therefore perfect. This is a Sermon on the Mount. Third Nephi 12, 38 through 48. And behold, it is written an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Wow, that's, that's the opposite of what we're talking about, right? That's the old way of doing things. But I say unto you that you shall not resist evil, but whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You may have to suffer a little bit longer. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Down to verse 44. But behold, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. That's our charge, and it's not easy, right? But the doctrine is that if we want to be sons and daughters of Christ, children of our Father in heaven, we have to learn to be peacemakers and to extend mercy and to not accuse, but to advocate the cause of our enemies. And I, I'm admitting that I don't really know how to do this on a practical level. I know the doctrine as of the last couple of weeks, this has come together for me, but if you guys in the comments afterwards can help me figure this out, it's an important principle. And Jesus taught it a lot of places. And I think as, as Christians or aspiring Christians, this needs to be in the forefront of our minds as we do our daily walk with Christ. And as we try to be peaceable followers of Christ, we have to remember that we're not out to stir up trouble or to accuse people. We're here to teach the doctrine of Christ, to revile not against revilers and do our best to even when people are ticking us off and being incredibly rude and, and doing harm to us and treating us unjustly, that we have to learn to bear patiently like Christ did if, if we're going to be called the children of Heavenly Father. Charity. Let's talk about charity. Joseph Smith said in History of the Church 6, page 252, the Lord once told me that what I asked for I should have. I have been afraid to ask God to kill my enemies, lest some of them should peradventure repent. Joseph was a nice guy. One day we'll realize that. <clears throat> this is History of the Church, Volume 4, page 445, another quote attributed to Joseph. If you do not accuse each other, God will not accuse you. If you have no accuser, 
you will enter into heaven. And if you will follow the revelations and the instructions which God gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my backload. If you will not accuse me, I will not accuse you. If you will throw a cloak of charity over my sins, I will over yours. For charity covereth a multitude of sins. End quote. That's a fantastic quote, I believe. I don't think Joseph, despite all the wickedness and corruption that he saw in Kirtland in Nauvoo, I don't think he had it in his heart ever to be an accuser for these people and to try to tear them down and to deliver them up to God to be destroyed. I, I think he was trying to be an advocate for his people. He was pleading with God on their behalf that they would have another chance. Lord, give me another chance to give these people the fullness. Have mercy on them. And I think all true prophets do that. Alma did that for his people. Nephi did it for his people. His tears watered his pillow by night. Remember, he, this Nephi wanted to be an advocate for all of his people, including the people he saw thousands of years ahead of time who would be destroyed and in great trouble. And so in closing, we have to take a look at all of the different ways that we can react to bad stuff happening to us. And it'll happen a lot, you know. Um, these are our possible reactions. Something happens to us, this blue line, we can accuse somebody. But it's not always a bad thing to just accuse somebody. You know, Joseph was told, seek a redress of grievances. You guys were wronged in Missouri. Petition the governments and the president and see if they can help you out. And there had to be an accusation there and to at least, you know, claim what happened or to state it. So with an accusation, we're asking for a plea for judgment. Now, if we're seeking justice and we want to get even with people, we want to show them who's boss or whatever, we want to get back at them, then we're going to go downward to the pits of hell. You start accusing people, oh, so-and-so did this to me. Can you believe it? And then... Before you know it, you might be tempted to be in a situation where you're holding a grudge. And if you're holding a grudge, you're not forgiving people. Those are contrary. And so you're starting to lose a little bit of light because the hardness of your heart. And you wish this person would have harm done to them or you wish they would get sweet justice, right? So you start holding a grudge maybe. If you're seeking justice, this is the way your mind starts to, to go. You might start to hate a person. And heaven forbid, you might actually retaliate or try to harm that person, which is the epitome for the broken law of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, makes us all blind. You know what I mean? Blind and toothless. Okay, so that's one way you can go. If you want to seek justice for all the wrongs that have ever done to you, yeah, go ahead and escalate down the ladder towards hell, you know, and, and see where that gets you, right? Or if you can catch it in the moment, we can start to ask ourselves, okay, so-and-so made me upset. I'm going to try to forgive this person. So if you forgive them, you start to gain a little bit of extra light. You're doing what Christ has asked you to do. And can you get to a higher level of mercy than just forgiving them? Can you pray for your enemies? Can you do good to people who despitefully use you and persecute you? That's what God's telling us to do. Hard, right? 
can you bless that person in addition to forgiving them? And the highest level, I believe, from my studies of the pure love of Christ, charity, is can you be an advocate for your brothers and sisters that are struggling? Can you pray for them? Can you plead like Nephi did to his people that were hard-hearted and being starting to be wiped out? This is Nephi, the son of uh, Helaman, in the book of Helaman. He was an advocate to, the, to God for his people. God, don't let them be destroyed by the sword, please. I'm begging you. Send a famine so that they can humble themselves and come unto you. That's what Nephi did to his enemies and to the people that were warring it up, that were even persecuting him. And remember, they tried to, they tried to throw him in jail and kill him. Remember when he told the, the group that Siantum had, had killed his brother and there was blood on his cloak and all that, the whole fiasco happened? Like they were, they were coming after him. He was not a popular guy back then, but he found it in his heart. Granted, he was very, very well ascended. Um, in, in light and truth, but his job as a prophet of God was to be an advocate for his people, to plead on their behalf, which is the most Christ-like attribute that I've been able to find in the scriptures in regards to how to treat other people, right? So in closing, I just want to say that this, this journey of understanding forgiveness and advocacy and blaming people and holding grudges and forgiveness and accusation. I mean, all of this stuff blends together and it lives within the dichotomy between justice and mercy, right? I honestly believe if there ever were a shortcut to becoming a little bit more holy or a little bit more righteous or a little bit more filled with the spirit of God and having that love in your heart, I think this is a major catalyst towards mega progress in the gospel. If you can learn to forgive people that have wronged you, learn to love them and pray for them, um, learn temperance, you know, long suffering. Um, there's no doubt about it. This is the way that God expects his people to operate. And when you absorb something wrong that someone did to you and you don't turn and hurt that person back, you have absorbed evil and it ends with you and that is a way that we can take a, a strong stand against satan who's the father of contention is that we can learn to not revile against the revilers that we can learn to be peacemakers we create peace out of war if someone's attacking us like they were christ we can turn that into a positive thing and we can soften hearts um and you remember the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who, who softened the hearts of their, their aggressors that were coming after them. And so I, I believe that these principles work. Um, they're fascinating. And I think that Jesus Christ um, is willing to help all of us in our family lives, with our friends, with our spouses even, to get over those times when it's just so hard to forgive. Ask him for help and start practicing this week. And... Um, that's my testimony to you that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's rooting for us. He's got our backs, but we have to repent and come unto him and live his gospel. We have to be merciful to others um, in order for us to expect mercy from him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>